You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. And today we're going to be continuing our series, Built to Last. We started last week, and uh, if you missed that, you can get the podcast. Uh, we have that in a couple places online, and uh, anywhere you get your podcast, it should be available there. But uh, we, we started last week with this idea that, uh, and it comes from Matthew 16, which we'll read in just a moment, that Jesus is our foundation, and foundations matter. What is built on Jesus will last. What isn't built on Jesus in our lives, our family, our marriages, our future, our calling, our business even, whatever concerns us is meant to be built on a foundation that is unshakable, and I believe that the only foundation that's unshakable is the person and work of Jesus. And so we discussed that last week, and uh, today we're going to continue with this, but I'd like to reread it uh, just to kind of unpack uh, some principles. Today's message title, if you're taking notes, is Some Assembly Required. Some Assembly Required. Jesus replied in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 16, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this truth of who Jesus is is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This this part of the conversation comes right after Jesus asked them a very important question. He said, who do you think that I am? Who do people say that I am? But more importantly, who do you think that I am? And Peter opens his mouth and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus then points to this truth and says, on this rock, this foundation of who I am, I'm going to build my church And that's what we're going to look at today is him building his church. What is the church? You're the church. The church is not just where we gather. It's the people of God. God's not just after building big churches. He's after building big people. He rescues us, restores us. He sets us free. And then he brings us into a family. Church is a spiritual hospital for the broken, the hurting. But it's also a family that he brings us in, gives us identity, purpose, and value, and significance. And then he turns us loose to bring about the purpose of God in the world around us. And we like to say this this way, that we exist as a church uh, to see people know Jesus. Everything starts there. We also want to see people experience freedom. What we find in Jesus is freedom, is growth, is transformation. Then we find community. We find a family. If you didn't know, you have a whole lot of family that you may have yet not met because you've got the same, you've got the same father in heaven who has rescued you, adopted you, restored you. No matter what your family history was on planet earth, you have a new name, a new nature that comes from your God in heaven. And you've been purchased with a price, the precious blood of Jesus, as we sang and talked about today. But also this, that you and I have been rescued, redeemed, and brought into the family. And there we discover our God-given purpose. And Jesus points to this. He says, I'm going to build my church. And just by the definition of what he's doing is he's building. That means things are growing. Things are advancing. And I gave you this definition last week, but I'll repeat it, that, that the, the, the Greek word for church helps us define and understand what the church is. Because if I ask 100 Christians what the church is, I'll get 100 different answers most likely. Some of them will involve potlucks. 
I like, I, like, I like some food, if you haven't noticed, and that's a good thing. Uh, we like to barbecue. We had ice cream Sundays, Wednesday. I think we should enjoy. We should fast, and we should feast. Come on, somebody. Uh, and, and so that's, that's one of the things sometimes we think, well, we sing songs, or we listen to a sermon, or, or we, we, you know, there's all kinds of ways we define the church. Here's how, in fact, Jesus uses this word only twice in the Gospels, but it's used throughout the entire New Testament. The church is this word, uh, ekklesia in the Greek, and it's a word that starts with ek meaning uh, brought out, called out, brought out of something, but then uh, kaleo is the next part of that word, and it literally is to call forth, to assemble, to call together, to assemble. So ekklesia together means that it's called out, we are a people called out of something. What did he call you out of? Well, he called you out of the world. He called you out of darkness. He called you out of shame. He called you out of your past. He called you out of what had held you captive. He called us out, but he called us together. In fact, it's this last piece that I think many people, even today, miss. That sometimes we think, well, you know, I, I love Jesus, but I'm not sure about the church. And usually we say that because maybe we've had some bad experiences with Christians. Can I tell you, there is no perfect church. There is no perfect family because it's made up of imperfect people. I messed it up the moment I showed up. <laughs> when Je It was just Jesus, he's, he's perfect. But every one of us is imperfect and we're a part of an imperfect family. But God actually designed the church to be the place of our spiritual advancement and growth. There's some things that we only find in the church that we won't get anywhere else. And God's designed it that way and he actually calls the church his. He says, I'm building my church it's not a pastor's church, it's not a deacon's church, it's not a board's church, it's not a denomination's church, it's not religion's church. The church of Jesus Christ is his. He is the head, we are the body. He is the bridegroom, we are the bride. He is the cornerstone, we're the building. And when we get that straight, we recognize that what Jesus builds, in fact, it's the only thing that Jesus ever said he would build. It's the only thing he said he would build. And I believe it's, meant, it, it's built to last. It's built to outlast generations. It's, meant, it's built to la outlast cultures. It's built to outlast governments and princes and kings. And it, it's meant to outlast anything else, every other human institution. It will outlast. In fact, we'll see it in the end because even the gates of hell won't prevail, and we'll actually unpack that more next week, and, and I'm excited about the word for you next week, but I wanna, I wanna help you with this today because I think sometimes, even as Christians, we misidentify and recognize the purpose of the church, and because of that, what you, how you identify something and how you value something determines what you get from it many times, and so how we see our marriage affects what we how we not only view our marriage, but what we receive from our marriage and what we invest into it. And it's so different than the church, that how we see the church affects what we receive and pour into the church. I like to go back to the blueprint of the Bible, the blueprint of the New Testament in particular, and I'm just gonna give you a couple verses from this in Acts chapter two. Uh, when, when my kids, my oldest is now 14, and when my, my kids were little, I, I learned the process. You start with a crib, uh, which usually was overly complex in the way it was designed. And then we would move from the crib to their first toddler bed. And when I went from, my, when I put together my first toddler bed for my oldest, uh, Sam, when he was, I don't know, two years old, whenever we were transitioning to that, uh, maybe a little bit younger, I don't remember. Uh, I, I don't remember much from that season of life. <laughs> 
And, uh, but I remember building this toddler bed, and, and like most guys, I like to just get to work without always reading the instructions. I know it's cliche, but it's true. And so I, built, I put this thing together, and it was made up of wood, you know, wood beams and panels and wood slats. And, and so I'm thinking, this is very, very, uh, fairly simple. I can easily put this together on my own. The problem was I got to the very last piece of the toddler bed and realized that I had started it backwards. And, and what was supposed to be at the foot of the bed, I put at the head of the bed and vice versa. And so I get to the last piece and realize I did it wrong. And, and I, had to, I had to swallow my pride for a minute. Of course, I didn't admit to anybody else because nobody else was. I, and, and I had to deconstruct this bed, put it back together based on the instructions. And I think sometimes we build an idea of what, of what religion looks like and then we get along the way and find out some things don't work because we didn't follow the original blueprint. Okay, let me give you just a couple. There's actually a whole lot here I don't have time to get into in Acts 2. Uh, the church is evangelistic. The church is a spirit-filled community. The church is, uh, devotes themselves. In fact, let's look at verse 42. It says the church, the Christians, the believers, they continued steadfastly. They devoted themselves to a few things. First, the apostles' teaching or doctrine and fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and prayer. There's, there's four things mentioned there. The first is teaching, the apostles' doctrine. You and I have the word of God, the Bible, the, the foundation of the teaching that was passed on for, in the inspired word of God from Old and New Testament, brought to us, handed down to us from generations. Do you realize that this is the most outlawed book in the entire, Bible, in the entire world? This is the most outlawed book in the entire world. It's also the most published and purchased book in the entire world. And, and, and the Bible's foundational to not only the church, but every area of my life. The Bible has a lot to say about how I build a marriage. It says a lot about how I build my character, about how I follow God, about how I treat people, about how I, uh, how I work at a job or how I lead others. You know, every area of my life has a foundation and a basis. That's why the early church, they devoted themselves to it. They said, we've got to learn this stuff. But they also devoted themselves to fellowship. That's, that's a Christian word, a Bible word, for just simply building relationship, building community, sharing with one another, giving of themselves and receiving from others. That's what fellowship looks like. Every relationship requires both deposits and withdrawals. Many times our, our relationships end up on empty because we're withdrawing where we haven't made deposits. And then they broke bread together. That is, they like to eat too. So, so it's it, it not just here. It's always been the case, but they also prayed. That is, that God, the relationship with God was central to who they were. Jump down to verse 46. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple, they, in the larger gathering, they would gather at the temple of Jerusalem before they had larger places to meet, but they also would break bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity in heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There's, there's more in that chapter there was a part of that blueprint, but I want you to see this, that they gathered, their relationship was essential. In fact, there was assembly required. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, when the church began to experience persecution and difficulty and even discouragement, some began to throw in the towel on their gathering and their assembly together. And then the writer of Hebrews reminds them of the purpose of why we gather, why we assemble. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. What's the day? The day of the Lord, the day of the end, the day when Jesus comes again, when all of human history is wrapped up and, and all stand before God. And, and God, he says, in light of what's coming, in light of the seriousness of eternity, as we see the seriousness of that moment approaching, we should gather together all the more. Why? Because we need to be stirred up to love one another and love the world to Jesus, but also to serve, to make a difference, to use our gifts, to, to that's what good works are, to, to make a difference in the world. World. And he says, don't forsake assembling of yourselves together. I, I think of in 2020, I shared a little bit about us starting as a church in 2020. In fact, we, we moved here, my wife and I moved back and moved to Iowa in April of 2020, which was an interesting season for all of us. And I remember at that time, people saying, we don't want to gather with anybody. And, and around that time, especially, I was hearing a lot of people talk about what's the point of gathering should we just watch it? Should we just listen to it? And, and I'm thankful for media and opportunities to watch things online, and we're gonna do live stream when, we, when we're ready to, and, and we've got our podcast. I'm thankful for those moments. But, but, but even in that season, there was a church in uh, Minneapolis who was in a gathering with city officials, and one of the officials spoke up and said, if the church never reopens, we'll be happy. Why is the enemy so afraid of the church gathering? I believe there's a reason, because he knows the power of assembling together as the church. We need each other. There's some things you can't get just, just like, listen, my wife likes to shop. I like to window shop. She likes to go into the store and come out with something. There's a difference between looking through a glass window and actually experiencing and coming out with something. The church is never meant to be window shopping. It's meant to be something we experience from the presence of God together, worshiping together, praying together. When you're hurting, somebody lifting you up. When they're hurting, you lifting them up. Getting in the word together. There's something about assembly that we don't find any other way. We need to remember as the church why we gather, what the purpose is, and what it's all for. And I'm going to give you three things today. I know this is simple, but I think it's foundational because the church, I love the church, not just because I'm a pastor. What's so funny is I, my parents could tell you I did everything I could when I was younger to get out of going to church. I did. I faked being asleep. I faked being sick. I did anything I could to avoid going to church. And I, I made excuses, I did anything I could, but, but here's what I found when I met God in the church. When I encountered God's presence, the reality of who God is, it changed my life. And when I get to see other people experience the goodness and the love of God in a way that sets them free, it, every, listen, I, I know sometimes in the, in the church we, 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 we look at like Easter and Christmas Eve, and we got Christmas just around the corner, it's already less than 100 days, so get your, get your plans ready. Um, but can I just tell you, we look at those as like the Super Bowl of the church because that's when people come back. That's when everybody gathers. That, that, that's fine. But every Sunday is a chance to expect God to move in our life. Every Sunday. I tell our team all the time, this could be the first time or the last time somebody hears about Jesus. So I take that very seriously and I love the church because it's his church, his people built on his foundation so number one is we assemble to meet with God. Of everything we do as the church, we miss the point if we don't meet with God. 
if we don't make the main thing the main thing. In fact, here's how Ephesians 2, Ephesians has a lot to say about the church. He says that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's amazing. Uh, I, I can't even wrap my brain around that, that description of the church. But then he also describes the church as proclaiming to principalities and powers the wisdom of God. But here he says in chapter two, verse 19, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house, the household of God, the family of God. And you've been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We looked at that last week. In whom, listen to this next statement though, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also, that's us, are being built together. God's building something in the church in the world today. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Jesus isn't building religion. He's not building an institution. He's building a body of people that's filled with his presence. What changes my life and what changed my family's life and what changes many of our lives is the presence of God. There's not a sermon good enough. There's not a song good enough to change somebody's life. And whether you realize it or not, the, the difference maker for you and for me is and was the presence of Almighty God. His presence changes any, everything. It's the difference, as my wife read that verse, that, that the woman pushed through the crowd to get to Jesus. I wonder how many crowds of religion keep us from the person. Who is it? I think Gandhi, the political activist in India, said, I would have become a Christian if I had found one. <laughs> But, but, but if we can push through the crowd and we can see that the person of Jesus is what changes everything, he's worth it. And the reason we gather is first and foremost to meet with God. Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Of the Psalm 133 is, is a great verse, not only for the church, but for any relationship that God has designed. It says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And you got kids that have a hard time getting along in the backseat of a car? I don't understand it. It's like, I, we, we've got our three, we'll put them in the backseat, and it never fails. Somebody's gonna be touching somebody. It's poking them, poking each other. It's like, just keep, stop, don't. <laughs> Any, any other parents understand the, the cross to bear? Um, but here's, here's what he says. It's pleasant and it's good when, they, when brethren dwell together in unity. That's, that's relationships. God's designed your relationships from your marriage to your relationship with him to the relationship of the church, the family of God, that we would walk together unified in him. And he describes it this way. He says it's like the precious oil on the head. And then he gets this picture of, of Aaron, the high priest. And he says it's like oil on the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, the high priest, running down the edge of his garment. It's like the dew of Hermon. He changes the metaphor. Descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. What's, what's he saying? This is a short psalm. He says, when people walk together in unity in God, something happens. It's like oil poured from the head. If Jesus is the head of the church, where the oil flows is when we're connected to him. So, so anybody have a hard time getting along with somebody in their life? You don't have to raise your hand. You may be sitting next to them. <laughs> you can't have two people and not have disagreement. 
So unity isn't natural. It takes investment. It takes effort. It takes humility. It takes a willingness to not always be right, but choose what's right. And it doesn't even just come because we go, I'm gonna really try hard to be in unity with you today. It actually happens when we're connected to the head. That's why he has this picture of the priest and the oil goes from the top of their head all the way down to their feet. When we're connected to each other and to the head Jesus, what heaven has to pour out will keep flowing. When there's division in a relationship that God has designed and ordained, something happens, the oil stops. Every time. If you want the oil of heaven, here's how he describes it in the next metaphor. He says, that's where I bless. Do you want God to bless your family? Want God to bless your marriage? Want God to bless your business? Want God to bless the church? What happens? Unity is a part of that, and it comes not just for me trying to be unified with each other, but first saying, I gotta get me and Jesus straightened out. Do you know the cross is both vertical and horizontal? And sometimes we think, well, God, I can get along with. It's people I have a hard time with. But John would later say that, that I can't say I love him and hate people. It, it's, just, it's just true. So, so he goes back to the relationship. And, and, and this is where I, would, I always start with people. I say, I know you may be having challenges in your, your horizontal relationships right now, but, but have you first gotten this straightened out? Are you united to Jesus? Are you having your eyes set on Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? And when that is the starting point, then it's no longer about me being right in a situation. It's about saying, I'm gonna value this relationship and I want God's blessing there. The enemy fights relationships because it's in right relationship with God and then with our spouse, if you're married, and then with the church that we're able to impact the world. That's where the oil is. That's where the blessing is. Number two is we assemble to grow with others. We assemble first to meet with God, but then we assemble, we gather to grow with others. Church requires assembly. And, and I, I, here's, here's what I'm, I'm, the reason I'm telling you that is because, you know, the biggest conversation in our culture, there's a lot of conversations, most of them aren't very good, um, but, but there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and, and what that can do and how that affects technology. Can I just tell you, we also have artificial relationships. We have artificial friendships. We have artificial experiences. And, and when we don't go to the right source to fill the right need, we'll substitute it with something artificial. And as the church, we have to commit to say, I'm not gonna settle for artificial, artificial peace, artificial joy, artificial relationship, but I want something real and authentic. That's where growth happens. Why do we assemble together? Because it's when we're together that we start to grow. Let me, let me, let me help you. Have you ever prayed for patience and God gave you opportunities to be patient? Yeah, uh, me too. Have you ever prayed for for God to grow you spiritually. And then, and then all of a sudden you show up to church and somebody's sitting in the seat that you like to sit in. And they're loud and they're, 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 they're difficult. And, and, and you start, okay. I, I moved into a neighborhood and the first person I met, this is years ago, first person I met in this neighborhood, I, I said, hi, nice to meet you. And the first thing this lady, my next door neighbor said to me, she comes up to me and she says, um, you need to do something about this tree in your yard. It was true, it was in Arizona. I had this, in fact, the funny thing about it was we bought that house, one of the reasons we love the tree. <laughs> 
I said, oh, okay, I, nice to meet you. I'm Brian. Okay. Um, and, and I start complaining to God, like, really, God? This is, you know, and, and he reminds me, one, difficult, listen, you, you may have difficult people in your life, but if I can help you, you're probably somebody's difficult person. None of you. Second service, people. Second service. Second service. I, 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 and, and God has placed relationships together for our growth. Yes, for our blessing, but also for our growth. When I was single, I didn't have to be challenged in my self-centeredness. But then I got married and I realized there's somebody God's brought into my life that's different than me, that doesn't always think like me, that I've got to be willing to humble myself with. I've got to be willing to lay down my life at times for. There's that. And then you have kids and you realize, oh, I really am selfish because now I can't sleep. And there's, God puts relationships in your life for blessing, but also for growth. And it's no different with the church. Iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. So one man sharpens the countenance of his friend. God's placed people in your life for blessing, but also for transformation. Let me give you a quick story, Mark chapter three. It's a familiar story for us, but I wanna read this again. It says that Jesus entered the synagogue one day and there was a man who had a withered hand. And many watched him closely, Jesus, to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said, is it lawful? He tells the crowd that's witnessing, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do evil or to do good, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. Now Jesus gets mad about this. He looks around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. You know what always made Jesus mad was dead religion. His harshest, strongest rebukes were not for the tax collector and the prostitute and the sinner. It was actually for the religious crowd that kept people from life. And he's grieved because this man needs healing, and yet the entire, I know it's the, it's the synagogue, but, but it's, it's a picture of the assembly, the, what the church is to be, that many times religion has co-opted, hijacked the church. One of my good, one, one, this young pastor I'm, I met recently, uh, he posted, I saw this week, it was actually yesterday, I think, he posted about how church should be friendly, and then the keyboard warriors got in the comment section. Church should be friendly, like, who's gonna argue with that? Church should be friendly. He's a young pastor. He says, church should be friendly. And all of a sudden, there was like five comments. It's truth that matters. It's this. He's like, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just saying it's, <laughs> church should be friendly. It's, it's amazing how people can be critics so easily. And here's a man who has a withered hand. And because in that climate, in that culture, you were to hide your issue when you were in the house. Everybody outside of the room knew that he was the man with the withered hand. He, they, they saw him with the withered hand at the grocery store. They saw him with the withered hand at work. They saw him, they didn't have grocery stores, by the way, but they, they see him with the withered hand everywhere he goes, but when he's in the house of God, he's hiding. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And what I think is interesting, I know I've shared that story before, but as I was looking at this this week, it's so interesting to me that he didn't specify which hand. He says, stretch out your hand. Obviously, the man has one good hand and one withered hand, so of course he should stretch out the withered hand. But I wonder if there was a moment where the guy considered, I'm gonna stretch out the good hand. I'm gonna keep up appearances. 
I don't want to look vulnerable. I don't want to look weak. I don't want to look like I have an issue. I want to have a, I want to look perfect. Can I just tell you, it's okay to have problems and come to the house of God. It's okay to be imperfect and come to the house of God. We find healing. The place sometimes, some people don't come to the house because they're afraid of being wounded. Can I tell you, maybe you've been hurt in church, but the place of your greatest wounding can also be the place of your greatest healing. And he's hiding his issue because that's what religion told him to do. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Yeah, but everybody else, I I grew up with these people. (laughs) I I grew up in this town. I I, got to hide this. But as long as you're hiding, you're not free. He stretches out his hand and in the stretching, God heals him. And, and, And this is important because God designed the church for our growth, but also for our freedom, for our freedom. The Bible says in James, to confess your trespass, your faults one to another, that you may be healed. Forgiveness comes from God. But what happens when we find healing, it happen, many times happens in revealing what's been hidden. Going to somebody and saying, hey, would you pray with me? I need help. Being real with God and being real with people. The third thing, is that we assemble to make a difference. We assemble to make a difference. Jesus said this, John chapter 17, verse 18, concerning the church, concerning you and me. He said, God, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We were never meant to just be uh, join a club, a social institution called the church. We were meant to be the church mobilized to bring hope to the world. We were meant to use our God-given gifts, and I'm gonna teach you what those are in the next couple weeks. If you don't know what your gifts are, you can also come to Next Steps where we help you identify what God's placed in your life so that you can make a difference in the world. But I love this. You know, sometimes there's seasons of life where, man, I just need help, (laughs) and that's totally okay. But there's also seasons of life where once I've received that, I need to give away what God's done in me. I'm going to finish with this chapter, Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 is a prophetic promise to a people who are in exile, who are far from home. And and here's the promise. There are people who've lived with disappointment, discouragement, hopelessness, and maybe that's where you've been. You've been empty. You've, You've been hurting. God's word to them, God's promise to those in exile, he says, here's what I want to do. I want you to sing, this is, I'm going to read it from two translations, then I'm going to talk about it, and then we'll get ready to wrap up. He says, sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. He's speaking prophetically to a people that have not seen the fulfillment of a promise. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. The Message Bible says it this way. Sing, barren woman who has never had a baby. Fill the air with song. You who've never experienced childbirth, you're ending up with far more children than all those childbearing women. God says so. Clear lots of ground for your tents. Make your tents large. Spread out. Think big. Use plenty of rope and drive the tent pegs deep. You're gonna need lots of elbow room for your growing family. 
I believe this is a word for God's people, Israel, in a time of restoration and difficulty, but it's also a promise for the church. That you and I, who've been, maybe you've had disappointment in your life, you've had discouragement in your life, you've had hopelessness in your life. It's time to not let disappointment and discouragement define your outcome. He says, sing, oh, barren. Like, we don't just sing, win the promise. Like, anybody can celebrate when they won the Super Bowl. But can you sing when you haven't seen yet? When you still see your family hurting, can you sing? Can you lift your hands? Can you worship? Faith is not just in the receiving of the promise, it's in the declaration of a promise not yet seen. He says, stretch out, make lots of room. And he gives this prophetic picture to a people who all their hopes and expectations seem dashed. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Make some room, enlarge. See, what God does when we assemble together is he begins to stretch, like the tent described here. Stretch out your dwelling place. Have you ever felt stretched before? Well, listen, stretching feels uncomfortable, but it's necessary to make room. Enlargement is necessary. When God begins to stretch us as the church, why would he stretch his people? Because he's after more than just saving us. He's after more than just answering our prayer. He wants to make room for all those that don't yet know him. Lengthen your cords. Reach out. When the church begins to reach out, and I'm so thankful that we have a church that reaches out. Nick and Alex do an amazing job with River City Outreach, and so many of you are a part of that. Reaching our city, reaching the hurting, reaching the lost. I, can I tell you, sometimes when you have a heart to reach out, people are gonna come that maybe don't look like you or don't talk like you or don't know the Bible like you, and, and that's perfectly okay. We have to be a church that's for us but not about us. I remember a few years ago, I had somebody, I was leading a young adults ministry, I'm almost done. Jason, if you wanna come up, that'll let me know it's time to stop. But I had a young adults ministry and, and uh, I had show up one time, a young, young couple, they walked in off the streets and the guy comes up with a backpack and he says, hey, do you want to see my snakes? And I'm thinking it's like a metaphor for something. But he's actually got live snakes in his backpack. Jacob was there, Pastor Jacob. And he, <laughs> I've never seen Pastor Jacob run so fast. <laughs> and I thought that was the strangest part. But then a few months later, I hadn't seen them in a while, come to the church, and a few months later, they show up, and the guy's got a bucket. True story. Comes to church with a bucket. He actually came on a Sunday morning, comes with this bucket, and I said, hey, what's in the bucket? He said, well, it's my seahorses. I said, seahorses? That's kind of different. He goes, yeah, I just caught them. <laughs> and he brought a bucket of seahorses to church. And then when I asked his, his, his girlfriend's with him, I said, hey, uh, uh, where you guys been? You know, we, we missed you all, you know, minus the snakes and the seahorses. She says, well, we've been gone for a while, but man, we've been doing a lot of drugs in the meantime. I said, I'm not surprised, hence the seahorses. But you know what I found? They found hope that day because people loved them even though they weren't there yet. Even though they hadn't arrived yet. Even though they hadn't figured it all out yet. Others had abandoned them, actually. It began to unpack their story. But I'm telling you, church, there's something... It's time for the church to reach out beyond the four walls of the building. To stretch out, to make room. That one generation would make room for the next generation and say, we wanna build a church that's for us, but also for the kids that are needing to know and experience God for themselves. For a generation we might not see. And he says, strengthen your stakes. 
You know what stakes are? In, in, a, in a tent that would have guidelines that would, you'd stretch out, think of like a circus tent, you pull it apart and, and raise it up on poles, but you pull the, the tarp, the top, and then you stake it into the ground. He says, strengthen your stakes. The tent is only as stable as the stakes in the ground. And while you're stretching and while we're making room, we always gotta remember what's foundational and what's essential. And while we're going wide, we're also going deep. And then in each one of our lives, we allow God to take us deeper. Whatever your prayer life looks like, God wants to take it deeper. Whatever your, your time in his word looks like, he wants to take it deeper. And I'm, I'm calling our church to this because Jesus is building one thing in the world today, one thing, and he's building his people. And I found out a long time ago, I wanna be a part of what he's building. I wanna be a part of what he's doing because my family needs that. I hear from people say every once in a while, they say, well, I just want my kids to grow up and choose their own religion. Usually when people say that, it's because that's all they've had is religion. They don't know the person. And when you know the person who's changed your life, you know Jesus who's changed your life, you, you can't help but share it, live it out. Not that we're perfect, none of us are perfect, but we say, you know what, I'm going after God. Do you know what the next generation needs to see? Not a perfect people, but a people that know how to be real before God. That their hunger is real. Their passion for Jesus is real. Stretch out your tents. You're gonna need lots of room. Church, it's time to make room when we, in January, we knocked out a wall that was right here. It used to be a bathroom back here. It was always funny when we first started the church, one of my kids, it, dependent, it was always this service, one of my kids would make a visit to the bathroom while I was preaching. And you hear the flush in the background of my sermon. I had to pre preach over it. So, so when the bathroom went away, that was a good day. Um, but we had our, our platform up here and we had a wall. And in the back, we had our storage area. And when it was time, we decided we were gonna knock out a wall and add some seats and build a new stage. And we did that last January. A couple of you were a part of that. But before we could make that room, we found out we had some stuff, even in like two years, two and a half years, we had some clutter back here. And we had to clean some stuff out. And you know what I think happens in our spiritual walk, especially concerning the church, is the enemy fills our life with clutter, hurt, some of us are we're called to build. All of us are called to build. Be a part of something that's bigger than all of us together. Do you know what I think keeps a lot of people from being not only in the church and assembling in the church, but it's the clutter of hurt, loss, disappointment, and what that pastor said and did, and what that Christian that I sat next to said and did, and the gossip and the betrayals and all those things, and we have all this clutter and, I, and I'm saying that because it's time to declutter, to bring it all to the light, to Jesus, to stretch out the withered hands so that we can be healed. Don't let what somebody else did keep you from God. Don't let what somebody else said keep you from God. Don't let your hurt and your past experience from imperfect people define a perfect Jesus for you. But let him bless your life through relationships that are life-giving. We wanna be a church that's life-giving that always points to Jesus. And that's all of our calling together. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. I want us to pray together. Altar team, if you come to the front, we're gonna dismiss in just a moment.
purpose of the church is to assemble to meet with God, to grow together, and to make a difference in the world. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.